He's the host of Settling the Score, and he's the host of Settling the Score. Please welcome John and Andy. Hello, John. Fancy meeting you here. Well, hi there, Andy. Nice jacket. What, is there something wrong with my jacket? I just said it was nice. But on a serious note, these are troubling times, and with every passing year, the Academy Awards become ever more vital in the fight against not giving out awards. For over 90 years, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has been tirelessly committed to the difficult but important work of saying which people it thinks are better than other people, and then giving them golden statues about it. On this night, celebrating so many diverse voices, this category brings us the sounds of electric guitars in Colorado Springs, talking drums in Africa, cellos in Harlem, saxophones in Japan, and Mary Poppins in London. But obviously, only one of those voices deserves a prize. The one that's written inside of this envelope. And John, isn't that the nicest jacket of all? The nominees for Best Original Score are... Black Klansman, music by Terrence Blanchard. Black Panther, music by Ludwig Gorenzi. If Beale Street Could Talk, music by Nicholas Bertel. Isle of Dogs, music by Alexandre Desplat. Mary Poppins Returns, music by Mark Shaman. And the winner is... going to be announced on Sunday, February 24th, at the 91st Academy Awards. But for now, you can listen to us talk about those scores at great length on this, our special interruption episode, 2019 edition. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Andy, I'm going to begin this Oscar special the same way that I did last year, which is to ask you, you you watched all these movies, huh? Just barely, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) I just watched them. I had not seen that many movies this year, but now I've seen... At least these five. You should see some movies. A lot of them. I know, it's great. Yeah. I love movies. Sure. Maybe I don't even want that on the record. Maybe that's damning. Yes, I've seen these movies, John. Of course I have. I'm very responsible. <laughs> I wasn't questioning that. Have you seen these movies, John? I have seen these movies. And uh, I think last year I also asked you as we went along, or we, we asked each other if we liked these movies as we were talking about them. But uh, here, I'll just put it up at the front. Did you like these movies? I somewhat liked some of these movies. All right. <laughs> Where's your Lycometer this year? I think I pretty much mostly liked these movies. And uh, I also kind of feel like I'm probably going to wind up saying uh, about a lot of these scores, hey, you know, this is pretty good. What do you want from me? I think that's going to be my mantra this year. All right. I'll take that. I think mine is going to be something like, it's okay. Uh, does it deserve an Oscar? I don't know. 
great. Sounds like we're we have the makings of a really slam banging episode here. That's going to be a fascinating conversation. So just imagine one of those things and then the other back and forth. I think this is pretty good. What do you want from me? Uh, it's okay. But does it deserve an Oscar? Well, one of them is going to get it. Uh, that's right. Deserve really doesn't come into it. I actually found that there were some interesting similarities running through all the nominees. And I really did feel like they were all pretty good examples of craft. I, I don't think I'm going to be upset if any one of them wins. Pretty good examples of craft. Maybe that should be the uh, the reminder mm. of the thing that we mentioned last year. That uh, yeah. the, Who could forget? I know. Everyone's favorite part of the podcast, <laughs> the rules. Uh, the Academy <laughs> specifies in its rules what the criteria are. This is for all of the music categories. And they say works shall be judged on there effectiveness, uh-huh. craftsmanship, uh, creative substance. It's all coming back to me. And relevance to the dramatic whole. Sure. So you say that these are all good examples of craft. Well, I think I agree with you. But that's just one quarter of what the Academy wants us to care about. Okay. Which quarter? Craftsmanship. The craftsmanship quarter. Okay. Um, I guess we should uh, just dive in here. The Oscar's going to start any minute now. So yeah, let's get this going. <laughs> well, okay. So the Academy lists their nominees alphabetically by film title. So first up is Black Klansman, music by Terrence Blanchard. Black Klansman was written by Charlie Wachtel, David Rabinowitz, Kevin Wilmot, and Spike Lee, based on the memoir by Ron Stallworth. It was produced by Sean McKittrick, Jason Blum, Raymond Mansfield, Jordan Peele, and Spike Lee, and was directed by Spike Lee. It stars John David Washington as Ron Stallworth, the first black cop in Colorado Springs, who establishes a telephone relationship with a local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan as an undercover operation, and Adam Driver as the white detective who stands in for Ron with the Klan in person, and Topher Grace as Grand Wizard David Duke. John, what do you think of Black Klansman? I I really thought this was a good movie. I thought it did a hard thing well, and uh, much as it was difficult to be confronted with uh, the stuff, uh, I mean, this really confronts you with it, but I thought it did a good job of it, and, uh, you know, did you not think that? I had a reaction that I feel like I've had to other Spike Lee movies, which is that I don't know that this coheres, but it's definitely an interesting bucket of stuff and the last thing in the bucket is you know here's some real events from recent history this is the world you live in now stuff which is a painful place to go and uh Mm -hmm. the uh occasionally goofy occasionally disjointed occasionally preposterous story that preceded that i don't know how to take i don't know how to add it all together you said it does a difficult thing and it does it well what was the thing you were thinking of i think it threads the needle to be all those things that you mentioned it is goofy and preposterous and it makes you care about individual people who have moments both heavy and goofy and for me it added up to uh you know a powerful mirror holding up sort of a thing i was i was there for it when it got to the topical stuff at the end i was riveted and distressed by that but i had been on a journey involving some tonal confusion prior to that and uh maybe i'm in the minority here because i've heard people saying that the tone is balanced so perfectly and that's what's so brilliant about this movie that's what that's what i was thinking i liked the performances Mm -hmm. the 
two leads are very appealing. John David Washington and Adam Driver were both scene by scene carrying me through. Mm -hmm. But the script, I don't know if the script was, and I honestly don't know if the music was. I think some Hmm. of my favorite moments with this movie were scenes with no music or source music. Which is not a knock against Terrence Blanchard's compositions, but um, I wasn't certain what the, the whole identity of this movie that was both a very serious movie about very serious subjects and a comedy that was willing to bend its own truth for jokes. I didn't know where the there was, and um, uh, I'm not sure the music answered that. It sort of sidestepped the question. What did you think of the score? Hmm. I really liked the score, and I think that the score kind of embraced the idea of being a combination of things. I think the score itself put a bunch of things together in some different ways that made it feel like it did add up for me. Let's listen to the the main title track. Uh, It starts out with these kind of sneaking, slightly dissonant strings. And then uh, there's a cool drum groove that gets put on top of it and an electric guitar. felt like he was very comfortable mixing different uh, traditions and instrumental palettes and at the end of the day I think I came to feel like it was intentionally being a melting pot to use a loaded term because I think that that's kind of what Spike Lee has in mind throwing a bunch of stuff together is what he wants to celebrate. I guess I didn't hear the score as distinct elements that signify different things being combined. I hear those strings as a trademark of Terrence Blanchard's scores for Spike Lee's movies for a long time. These moody strings with sometimes some sort of, you know, American classical dissonances in them. Sure, and I think he's good at that. I think he is good at that. I think he's good at creating a warm, emotional, moody uh backdrop Mm -hmm. with these strings which also tie into i mean terrence blanchard is a jazz musician first Mm -hmm. he's a jazz trumpeter and uh there's a jazz element kind of a moody jazz moody classical string section and then elements from the pop and jazz worlds like the bass and drums and here there's the electric guitar which i thought was supposed to kind of allude to cop shows and crime movies that's what that sound meant to me maybe a bit i actually read an interview where he said that he was inspired to use an electric guitar in this score because the film is set in the 70s and he was thinking about what would be a 70s kind of sound and he flashed on the famous performance by Jimi Hendrix of the National Anthem at Woodstock where he blares it on this incredibly distorted electric guitar and does all kinds of uh, screeching guitar wah-wah stuff on the National Anthem. And uh, obviously this electric guitar doesn't sound like Hendrix's guitar, but I read this quote where he said that that performance, he always uh, held it up as being 
extraordinarily patriotic and he read into what Hendrix was doing there that he was screaming we are all Americans and uh, so that inspired him to think of an electric guitar as something that would be a good fit tonally here and uh, he instructed his guitarist to obviously not sound like that but to have that emotionality behind his playing. I think that kind of fits into the idea of Melting Pot, that he's taking from different places. I thought it was interesting, there's a source music scene where the main character goes to a club, I guess. He's dancing at a club with uh, this girl that he's asked out, and they're dancing to they're dancing to this uh, classic Motown tune, uh, Too Late to Turn Back Now. Come on, come on, come on, come on. To turn back now. I believe, I believe, I believe I'm falling in. After hearing the electric guitar and pop drums and bass on top of orchestral strings that he had been playing with for the score, I don't know if Terrence Blanchard had a hand in choosing this song, but I felt like, oh, he's kind of showing his work here. This, you know, sweet big string section on top of uh, rhythm section stuff and pop music. I feel like it's both a demonstration of the kind of combinational music making that he wanted to do, that he was inspired by, and I feel like he kind of arrived at it independently as well. So sort of the similar instincts that created Motown in the first place, and uh, you know, it's just sort of, that's already an interesting and probably fraught story of black American experience in and of itself, and I kind of felt that connection. Well, you're going pretty deep there into like picking apart the DNA of the pop music that to me, this just sounded like. Yeah, this sounds like music from the 70s. And I think that was probably the point of reference. I was struck. I thought it was sort of a deliberate keynote in the movie by the scene where the characters, for no reason other than that, like Spike wanted this in the movie. So here it is. They're talking about their favorite exploitation crime movies. I got a serious question. Oh, yeah. Very serious. Uh huh. Chapter Superfly. Oh yeah, that was a little weird. (laughs) Well, you know, Spike Lee saw this as relevant to the assemblage he was building here. It had something to do with the tone. It had something to do with his approach to the material. Uh, And then there's a callback in the final shot prior to the jump to present day real life footage. The last time we see our heroes, Ron Stallworth, the main character, and his girlfriend, the head of the Black Student Union. They're posed like the poster of a mid seventies black exploitation crime movie. They're like holding the guns up and they're sort of being slid forward on a, on a dolly or something, which is another Spike Lee trick. I think they're walking. No, I think they got very good at walking without moving their uppy bodies. <laughs> and every, everybody who is a technique that Spike, Spike Lee, Lee demands has, this has of his actors. actors. <laughs> they train them. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's an illusion there. It's a throwback, and I think that that's laced through the movie. And um, I just heard the music as taking a cue from that as a starting point and then shading it into the palette that he usually uses. 
I guess the way I feel about Terrence Blanchard generally is his craft and his skill at creating that rich, thick mood that you can really sink into mm -hmm. is always strong. The mood works. I just don't always know how it applies to what's on screen. It feels like the sync between the music and the moves that Spike Lee makes isn't always clear to me. No, you don't think that it synchronized things? Well, what about the sequence where it's cutting back and forth between a clan initiation ceremony and Harry Belafonte talking about this awful lynching that he witnessed? He put Jesse on trial. And he was convicted by an all-white jury after they deliberated for only four minutes. My brothers in Christ... Yeah, even this scene. Again, I know I'm in the minority. I know a lot of people found this scene very compelling. I thought that that intercutting was strange, and the music certainly unifies it, but it unifies it under, again, kind of the umbrella of a general moodiness. And is it my mood or a character's mood or Spike Lee's mood? I'm, none of those seems really likely. I just thought it was there as an intensifier having this thoughtful, dense mood being laid by Blanchard sort of opens me up to reckoning with the gulf between them. These two different meetings, it made them feel like they were, you know, opposite sides of a coin or something like that. That I think the idea was here are two different meetings. Here are people who are interested in destroying a thing, and here are people who are interested in defending a thing. But by having this one piece of music go through it, it felt to me like it was saying, these people are over here, these people are over here, but it's the same world they're in, and it's a world where it's worth thinking important thoughts because this music is opening up that kind of space for my head. I felt the same way when it got to the end with the climax, where he you know, really gives the full-bodied, full-throated statement of his main theme, and uh, all these... Yeah, perhaps kind of preposterous doings are playing out. It just felt like Terrence Blanchard was doing as good a job as he could be doing of saying, you know, this is a story, this is important, it's happening, you're watching it, and uh, it's worthwhile. Right? What else do you want music to do? I think this is pretty good. What do you want from me? I will just put a, a little pushpin here to call back to later, because you're talking about having a, a philosophical response to the substance of the movie because the music puts you in a philosophically uh, receptive headspace. And we're going to talk about a movie a couple down the block here uh -oh. where that very much is how I reacted. And I think the technique to put me personally in that kind of is, headspace... Is it Mary Poppins? <laughs> it's Someone <laughs> Returns. I'm not saying who. Um, oh, okay. No, it's a, it's a different one. You can guess which one. Uh, the technique that puts me in a place where I feel like the music is in the space of philosophy, it's just a different technique, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, maybe that's it. It's just a subjective thing. The emotions in this music just don't happen to correspond very closely to the lens that I personally use for thinking about reality, about real social issues, about the stuff that Spike Lee cares about. Like, you know, this final sequence where we see footage from Charlottesville and 
think about the present day and think about the the, the state the state of hate. The real David Duke. The real David Duke shows yeah. up on screen and is not Topher Grace. He's actually David Duke, and he's not getting cute movie comeuppance from uh, getting a phone slammed on him. He's being a toxic force in the real world that we're currently living in. It just felt like I was going into a whole other zone of, oh, this, oh, good lord. Um, Once I had made that adjustment, you know, in the final seconds of this movie, I thought that the music I was hearing there did have a sobriety to it. I understood why it had been applied, but it, it almost felt like this is much worse than any movie music. This is this is just on a, another level, and I, I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure movie music is uh, is even the appropriate way to emotionally parse this stuff. How did you feel about that last sequence? Yeah, well, it was definitely jarring and upsetting, and you know, I'm sure that was the idea. Uh, I felt jarred and upset by it, and I also felt like uh, yeah, this kind of philosophical acceptance of. Uh, you know, uh, hey, we're all thinking deep thoughts together that I was attributing to the score. I felt like it uh, paid off here, and I was receptive to it as a landing point. It should be said, though, that the music that plays over this, which I think is terrific music, uh, is not actually original to this film. Yeah, this was a very strange thing to discover, that it is a cue, or it is at least a theme, from Terrence Blanchard's score to Spike Lee's film Inside Out from nope. 2006. Nope. Inside Man. <laughs> Inside Man. <laughs> it's, just, it's from Brave. <laughs> um, it's a theme from Terrence Blanchard's score to Spike Lee's film Inside Man from 2006, which was one of uh, Spike Lee's less politically engaged films. It was like a bank robbery yeah, it's a, movie. It's a bank heist movie, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, I, I saw it at the time. It does have a vague political element in the script. So that's what I think the connection was. And this was Spike Lee's idea to go back to this music from this old film. I think he's actually used it in other films before this. Yeah, I think he really likes it. He really likes this piece of music. I don't blame him. I think it's a great piece of music. But the MacGuffin in Inside Man turns out to be that the owner of the bank... Spoiler alert for a movie that's not even in this podcast... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a 14-year-old movie that is, you know was pretty good and fine. Anyway, it turns out to be that the bank owner was some kind of a war profiteer and had sold out Jews to the Nazis, and that he had some ill-gotten Nazi-derived things hidden in a safe deposit box in the bank, and that's what Clive Owen, the bank thief, was really after, was exposing this. So I think... Spike Lee went back to this because, you know, when he decided that he was going to put in this real live footage of neo-Nazi stuff happening in the real, for crying out loud, world, he wanted it to be a continuity amongst his oeuvre that, uh, hey, take a look at Nazism and this is really bad stuff. I think it was just... Oh, interesting. Yeah. You think it has, you think Nazi is the connection there. Yeah. I really just I thought do. this music sounds like the sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach that things are not going well. Right. The world is grim and the world is sick. And that's just what the music sounds like. I thought he just thought, oh, I've got that uh, world is sick piece of music in my back pocket. It's no, perfect. I think he actually had this uh, topical, this political idea that in Inside Man, turns out the way that the world is sick is that this banker was a Nazi war profiteer. And now the world is sick with, 
you know, I don't want to keep describing it, uh, but you hear this music as you hear them chanting, Jews will not replace us, um, from the footage of that, of, the, of that march. Uh, I think that's absolutely the connection that Spike Lee made and that he wanted it to be sort of a common thread across you know, different output that uh, this really powerful things are no good music is uh, rears its head, you know, when Nazism rears its head. Huh. Um, I'll have to think about that. Uh, because as you said, you know, invoking Inside Man 2006 over this horrific <laughs> footage is not, it's not a, like a strong move. So it, I thought it was really just for... Well, but the music is strong, right? The music is strong. That's what, that's what I thought. I thought he's proud of this piece that, uh, that Terrence Blanchard wrote and he likes the mood that it creates and thought it was the right thing to use and, and that's that. Look, what can I say other than effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, relevance to the dramatic whole? Craftsmanship is fine. Uh, effectiveness and creative substance are middling and Wait, cra- relevance. Craftsmanship is good. Yeah, it's no, it's good. It's fine. I mean, it's this palette that he goes back to. What's really significant about this is that Spike Lee and Terrence Blanchard have been making movies that everyone knows about for decades. And neither of them has been nominated before. Uh, And they are both nominated now for this movie. And that is great and deserved. And this is a fine movie for them to get nominated for. So their overall craftsmanship and creative substance should be appreciated. But in this particular movie, uh, you know, it's it's okay. That's what I said I was going to say. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I thought it was better than that, Andy. I thought uh, thought it was pretty good. What do you want from me? Uh, It's pretty good, but does it deserve an Oscar? (laughs) Well... (laughs) Well, let's move on and see what the next movie is that also might deserve an Oscar. And it looks like the next one up is Black Panther, music by Ludwig Göransson. Black Panther was written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole, based on the comics by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It was produced by Kevin Feige and directed by Ryan Coogler. It stars Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, the new king of the fictional African nation of Wakanda, who takes on the superhero alter ego of the Black Panther as part of the mantle of his kingship, and Michael B. Jordan as Eric Killmonger Stevens, an alienated Wakandan who is angered by its isolationism and attempts to usurp the throne. It also features Lupita Nyong'o, Forrest Whitaker, Angela Bassett, Martin Freeman, and Andy Serkis. Look, Andy, I think this is pretty good. What do you want from me? Here's the thing, John. We haven't talked about comic book movies ever on this show. Except when we briefly compared it in kind of uh, overall studio ambition to old-time biblical epics like Ben-Hur. That's right. We talked about how Hollywood goes through these phases where it gets obsessed with a certain product that it thinks is the perfect product and that they just need to keep producing that product over and over again. And it becomes codified and there becomes a whole institutional concept of that product. So it's kind of a lot for us to take on in this conversation. Before we talk about what we thought of the score for Black Panther, we kind of have to talk about what we think of comic book scores generally. Wait, we do? (laughs) Well, no, we don't, and let's not. Okay. (laughs) I mean, what I usually think about comic book movie scores is, hey, I'm having a fun time. There goes something awesome, there goes something fun. What comic book scores are doing is keeping me in this uh, continuous awesome fun. I think that's really the job of a comic book score is to be this accompanying energy track that rides along and uh, makes you feel like energy and fun is happening. 
and that definitely has different demands artistically, technically, than a lot of the other scores we've talked about, but it's still very demanding. Yeah, but I think you make a good point there that uh, these movies tell stories, but... You know, they're a roller coaster ride, and the main yeah. thing is to keep the roller coaster moving forward at a certain speed. And yeah. the story is one of many devices it uses to do that, and the music is another device. So the relationship of music to storytelling is a little bit different here. And there's kind of a set of formulas for how that roller coaster works, especially within not just comic book movies, but the Marvel movies. Marvel has made itself into a juggernaut of the modern day biblical epic. The Marvel movie. I mean, I think they deserve credit because I think their movies are usually pretty good and <laughs> entertaining, and uh, I think they're hitting on a lot of cylinders. Yeah, it's a very well-run business that they're doing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of the impression that I got, not only from the movie overall, but from this music, is that it's a very well-run, well-oiled machine. There's a lot of moving parts, and I think they've all been well cared for, well-tuned. I think they, you know, mesh well, a well-oiled machine. Yeah, I will not differ with that. This is a very well-oiled machine. Uh, yeah, of these five movies, I would say this is the biggest machine and the most oil. Okay, so let's look at some of the cogs in this machine. This has got to accomplish a lot of things. This has got to sound like a superhero movie, so it's got to have the kind of you know inflated importance and grandiosity and power behind it that you need for a superhero movie. But uh, it also is crucially uh, set in Africa, and uh, it's got to sound African. Uh, but then there are also modern hip-hop music elements mixed in as well. You know, it's got to convincingly stir all this stuff into a stew. And uh, look, I think it did it. I think it's a success. It's incredibly competent. Here, I wanted to pick out this one moment where there's a bunch of moving parts that are made to fit together in a satisfying, fun way. There's this action sequence with a car chase, and it starts out actually with source music. Andy Serkis says, uh, you know, put on some tunes in the car while we're Let's having go. our car chase. What's the music? What do you think this is, the funeral? starts playing and it's like what they're listening to in the car and then you know some cool action stuff starts happening and uh, you know please notice exactly what car they're driving as it does mm -hmm. but then uh, you know a little while later after this song has been established the action score kind of emerges up out of it rises out of the groove that's already been established and just kind of coexists and rides on top sort of the same way that uh, Black Panther is riding on top of the car if you'll <laughs> permit me <laughs> Hey, look at your suit! But it did, it felt like, uh, you know, he's kind of surfing on the car and it felt like the action score was surfing on this hip-hop groove. And uh, I dug it. I was like, yeah, 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 putting stuff together, that's fun. It just felt like really well-done comic book movie ink. You know, they spent a lot of effort making you feel like, wow, that's awesome. And that, this was a moment where I felt like, hey, that's pretty awesome. So a major element of what's being combined in here is this authentic African material yep. that Garnson thought I, I need to go find the real thing because it's important it's important to the theme of the movie for those who haven't seen the movie it's a movie more about a culture than most superhero movies it's about the fictional nation of wakanda and their fictional culture which is kind of a pan-african myth 
culture. So he took a trip to Senegal and hung out with musicians there and recorded them playing a bunch of instruments in a bunch of styles so that he'd have this material and then he fits that in throughout the movie. And some of it is very striking, like uh, the talking drum, which is a traditional West African instrument where you can make it sound like someone talking because it's shaped like an hourglass. It's got two drum heads on either end and there's strings between them taut. So if you squeeze it, it changes the tension on the drum heads while you're playing it so you can change the tones and make it sound like a human voice. This is a real African tradition, used to be used for communication, and he sticks that sound, which you don't hear in movies, sticks it into the movie frequently, and associates it with the hero of the movie, and it is a really interesting sound element that he pulled from his trip to Africa. It is cool that it's there, it's exciting when it's there. To me, it's exciting to hear those sounds. But, like you said, one thing kind of rides on top of the other and they're all blended into the big machine and the distinction that I wanted to bring up. He treats that material like a producer rather than like a composer. He doesn't really compose anything African. He kind of layers it in. Ultimately, the score does not inhabit any tradition other than the Marvel movie tradition. It livens it with these things. And I noted that every time something truly emotional or truly plot progressing happens, you know, we see T'Challa, the Black Panther, fighting for his kingship in ritual combat. And the ritual combat has, you know, African drums and chants, some of which is taken from actual recordings made in Senegal by Garrison. Where is your god now? But then when he wins, <laughs> here comes the European trumpets because. Uh, some storytelling is going on and... Yeah, because we need that to be, you know, superhero awesome times. Right. And when you say we need that to be superhero awesome times, you are expressing one of the kind of ethnocentric assumptions yeah. that this movie is ostensibly breaking down, but it can really only break down to a point. And that's one of the kind of calculations that goes on. And I was specifically aware of it in the score, I think in part because of the Hollywood history of doing lip service to other hmm. cultural sounds, just throwing them in kind of superficially. I thought, well, this actually sounds more like Hollywood standard practice than I would have wished, but I understand why it couldn't go further. But maybe someday someone will. Okay, that's an interesting and fair point. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back on some of the musical material that I liked best in the movie. I really liked the stuff for the ancestral plane. I thought that was uh, very classily done, and it's this, you know, very classical string orchestra stuff. Yeah, that's right. Very moving piece of music. One of the, I think, boldest pieces of composition in there where he really composes right up into the faces of the characters. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, maybe the closest that it gets to having an impact on what's on the screen rather than just being, you know, an awesome sonic energy accompaniment. Yeah. And I thought it was really well done. Like you said, it's bold composition. It feels very dignified and deep. And that motif there. Yeah. comes back in a lot of different situations and it sort of takes a while to accrue what meaning it has and by the end to me anyway it seemed like the meaning of it was heritage tradition Mm -hmm. you know wakanda as a place of you know your roots are here family i thought that that was very effective but indeed yeah he's not in an african mode really in the pieces that use it no, he's not. Uh, one of the other things that he took back with him from Senegal was this singer named Baba Mal, I believe. Yeah, who's a star in Senegal and who he was uh, touring around with when he was there. Yeah, so he's singing a bunch in this score. And, uh, you know, that's an African sound that uh, has pathos to it. It is, yeah. I guess to go back to my point from earlier, the, the sad thing, and it's not Ludwig Garnson's or Black Panther's fault, is that a lot of this stuff was stolen for much more superficial use previously, and right, our right. ears are used to it for that reason. Yeah, this keening ethnic voice just being generic ethnic sadness is just everywhere. Yeah, and indeed, you know, unusual percussion, not familiar to, uh, you know, American orchestras being used to liven up an action sequence is also kind of old news at this point because of, you know, Emil Richards and going back to Jerry Goldsmith we talked about on the Planet of the Apes episode. They had all this stuff sitting around in LA and they started putting it in orchestras. I was actually struck that in the chase sequence that you mentioned earlier, there are drums that are not Africa signifying because they're just a thing that Hollywood does all the time. Right. And then special Africa drums get layered on top of it. And to a listener who's not trying to pick this stuff apart, it all sounds, you know, I could imagine these African drums being in uh, any movie with Vin Diesel and you wouldn't (laughs) blink an eye because you're used to it. Uh, But here it does have more meaning and I'm glad for that more meaning. I, I just think that this deserves to be recognized. It deserves some approbation for getting done everything that it gets done. Yeah, being the energy track of an awesome superhero movie and having African elements at all and having actual emotional things, threading all those needles. I just want to give it credit for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's also... Look, I don't know what I want to say, Andy. It's uh, I think this is pretty good. What do you want from me? My favorite thing that he does compositionally in this score i think it's the most successful compositional use of the african material is what sort of functions as t'challa's theme which is this rhythm dun 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 da dun 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 t'challa right and the da is t'challa people chanting t'challa in one sequence but the rest of the time it just sort of stands in for people chanting t'challa And that rhythm and that idea of turning a word's rhythm into a beaten rhythm, I believe, comes out of the African recordings that he made. Mm-hmm. And it feels musicologically connected. Da-da-da. That's not a rhythm you hear in other superhero movies. At least to my ear, it sort of jumps. And I thought, oh, yeah, he found a way to get that, you know, London studio European orchestra to play something a little outside its normal tradition by a couple of inches. And I was excited about that every time it came up. (laughs) 
You know, there is a melody that goes above that theme, and it is the melody of the song Take On Me from 1984. <laughs> uh-huh. I have now ruined the movie for you because now when you watch it, you will hear them playing Take On Me over and over. <laughs> anyway, this idea of using the character's name in the music, there's a parallel idea for the bad guy, Killmonger. You, you can't even bring yourself to say his name, can you? Well, I wasn't sure if I should call him the bad guy because he's an unusual character, but he's the bad guy. Well, the straightforward bad guy is Andy Serkis, but right. he doesn't figure into the ending. Do you notice that uh, the two main white people in this movie are both hobbits? Um, that's interesting. I did not notice that. I forgot. I forgot that Andy Serkis was a hobbit. I remembered that he was a CGI character. Here he's only partially CGI, yeah. which is a step up for him. <laughs> or a step down. I don't know. He probably likes doing that stuff. What I was going to say. Oh, the Killmonger has this flute material. Hmm. It's a African flute. It's the flute of the Fula people called a tembin. The flute player that Ludwig Gardenson, you know, had recommended to him by his hosts, he told this player about, uh, you know, this is the bad guy, but he has good intentions, but he's very angry, and he was wronged, and sometimes he goes crazy, and why don't you improvise something? And the guy improvised some stuff, and part of it was when he went crazy, played this, you know, foo, 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 crazy stuff on the flute and started also shouting, Killmonger! Killmonger! <laughs> sort of through the flute. And that's sort of in the movie. I wish it were more to the fore. When I heard it on the soundtrack, I thought could have gone even further the more hmm. african and specific it felt the more i had to grab onto but um i'm glad that what bits got in there got in there okay that's an interesting and fair point again my just overall takeaway is it's praiseworthy to be able to get all this done and to have it coalesce and you know hum yeah who can deny of course yeah sure but does it deserve an oscar you want to you're not going to do your your rankings oh uh, effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, relevance to the dramatic whole. I think all of them were, you know, a nice B. And if you want to take the special assignment that this was given to this, you can move the craftsmanship up to A. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. But like, you know, getting a B on all of these different topics in this very, very hard course is like at the top of the curve, I think. Yeah, it's done, you know, many times a year because we're living in the age of Marvel. And yeah, this one's a good one. Okay, what's the next thing that got nominated? I believe the next thing that got nominated begins with IF, is that correct? Uh Uh-huh. The next movie on the alphabetical list is If Beale Street Could Talk, music by Nicholas Bertel. If Beale Street Could Talk was written for the screen by Barry Jenkins, based on the novel by James Baldwin, It was produced by Barry Jenkins and Friends, and directed by Barry Jenkins. It stars Kiki Lane and Stefan James as Tish and Fani, a young couple whose love is portrayed against a background of injustice in 1970s Harlem, most importantly Fani's wrongful imprisonment while Tish is pregnant with his child. Uh, Yeah, I thought this was a terrific movie, Andy. What did you think? Yes, I thought it was beautiful and affecting, and this was not made to fulfill an order. This is a piece of art 
from from an artist truth seeking artists it was not made to a plan finds its own way and that is a stimulating and rewarding thing to experience yeah it was affecting and all encompassing it felt wonderfully all out of a single artistic conception to me i really admired about it that it is an adaptation of a literary piece of literature that wants to be philosophically expansive from telling a simple story to be allegorical to be kind of evocative of much broader ways of thinking than what's specifically on the page and that it managed to do exactly that and to do justice to that intention such a hard thing to keep that kind of a flame alive as you transfer something from one form to another like from one bottle to another they got that out of a book and put it into a movie that's an impressive feat ooh, 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 ooh. is this the movie that you said before you were going to talk about <laughs> that it has a philosophical headspace indeed this is the movie that I said made me feel philosophical yeah. through its artistry and the music was intimately tied to the creation of that space yeah it did that for me too yeah that was well said about how it captures the literary sense of this having been a book and a literary one at that and i think it did have the effect of tuning my experience of it in that direction you know like the actual amount of things that happen in this movie if you just were gonna portray those events you could make the movie in a quarter of the time but it felt like it was worth all of the time that it did take and I think the music really contributed to the feeling of it being worth taking this time to be in this space and to let feelings wash over you I think the music washed some very very lovely feelings over me yeah because the time in which the movie plays out is not the time in which the story plays out the day I realized Fanny was in love with me was strange it's told out of order there's a lot of flashing forward and back Mm -hmm. It was the day he gave Mama that sculpture. And then it also takes place out of time just in the sense that it's just edited at a distance. It's sort of, you know, reminiscent of like uh, Terrence Malick movies where the narrator voice is speaking about things generally and that coincides with images treated, you know, as thematically suggestive images but not really as kind of plot images until it, you know, sort of dips down into a scene and then it goes back to an image and I idea space and that's the space where music exists the music is sort of trance-like because the experience is sort of trance-like it's not about measurable time yeah i got into the trance of it as well i really enjoyed that trance aspect and i think he achieves that by setting up these repeating processes yeah this kind of circular wheel of chords that go around and they just keep spinning and you go from one to the next and it feels like a continuity but then he populates that with these very sweet and moody elements that make it feel I keep saying worthwhile. Like, I really love these little fluttery calls on the horns that he lays on top of these spinning chord sequences. Feels special somehow. It feels both in motion and serene. It feels staid and smoky interesting textural yeah i think there's a genuinely related to hypnotism effect that Mm. goes on here not to the extent of you know losing yourself completely but uh you know if you listen to nicholas bertel do interviews he talks a lot about what music does to the listener 
it sounds like music that's been composed with a real interest in what you can do to people with music. And that kind of circular process that you're talking about where, you know, there might be just three chords or four chords and you're in a cyclical stasis that is also moving. The effect, I think, is that you start to get entrained to it and your brain starts to move. You know, it knows where it's going next and it both anticipates and remembers. Yeah, it kind of unsticks the listener from time in the way that the storytelling is unstuck from time. Yeah, that's right. And so then, yes, like you say, when he puts something on top of that, these trumpet runs, which... I think that there's an allusion there to the Miles Davis music that you hear at some points in this movie. You hear sure. all kinds of you know jazz records get put on. Right. I-, I thought that those trumpets that came in are kind of like hearing Miles Davis from far away while in a deeply emotional state. Mm. Although, you know, it also sounds like the experiments Miles Davis himself is doing. He did some sort of trancey stuff. Yes, like you say, once you're into that kind of unglued way of listening, you put a feature into that, some musical feature, and it glows. It feels like uh, whatever you were saying, and it has a kind of a halo of emotional significance around it because you've been readied for it. Whatever I was saying. Yeah. I definitely want to get back to what you said about listening to Miles Davis from some distance. Yeah, there's a great scene where exactly that happens. Where exactly that happens, and it was so effective to me. I guess let's just talk about that now. There's this scene where perhaps it's the most explicit that, you know, the underlying themes of injustice that they're given voice. I just got out of slammer, baby. When this guy's telling the story about how he was put in jail for really no reason and mistreated there. Two years. And how this is just sort of what black Americans can expect. Yeah. I mean, this guy is traumatized and he doesn't say quite what happened to him in prison, but it's like yeah. you're getting sort of a glimpse of how he can't be who he was before because of some fear that's been put in him. Yeah, and it's all about this cycle of injustice and poverty and oppression that's systemicized. It's what the movie is all about. Like I said, it's being articulated here most explicitly. This is a, you know, sort of very personal, perhaps idiosyncratic take that I had, but uh, it was absolutely palpable to me that they're playing Blue and Green off of Miles Davis's Kind of Blue album, which is one of my very favorite albums of all time. Uh, In particular, this track, I have often come back to it when I want to feel contemplative and moody and just, it's such a wonderful track to have on in the background for anything. It's on my all-time list. What they do to it, I think it must have been Nicholas Bertel who did this because I think the elements that are layered on top of it come back by themselves yeah, later on in the score. Two years because when you in there, they can do with you whatever they want. You hear me? Whatever they want. It's got these little faint ghost echoes of this three-note motif that is a part of his other material. But here, it's this, like, mud that's been rubbed over, you know, one of my favorite records. It gave me this very palpable sense of I was underwater. I was looking back at something that I know and love through this fog that was somehow organically part of it, but also obscuring it. Some of the things I've seen.
and it really, really did make me feel like, you know, I love Miles Davis. I never really thought about him particularly as a black musician. But it made me feel like this is, you know, an underbelly to the black experience that I, you know, had been privileged to not really have to think about much before. I could just love this music. Uh, The way that it layers on top of this, it was, yeah, very powerful for me. My experience of that moment wasn't a specific relation to Miles Davis other than that I, you know, also enjoy that track and enjoy the mood of it, as does Barnes & Noble, as does everywhere. Like, you hear that (laughs) in a lot of places where they want to feel mellow and good. And so, too, does the character that uh, is being spoken to there, Fani, the, you know, one of the two leads, who at that point has not yet been arrested for a crime he didn't commit and had his life sort of stolen out from under him. And he is in his home feeling reasonably good and this guy who's been traumatized and just can't really see the world as a good place very well anymore it's like we go into his experience and his ears and his brain are coated with this Mm -hmm. stuff and everything's from far away and i found that affecting identifying with you know being depressed or with having to deal with someone who seems like they're at a different distance from you know both sides of that conversation i thought this is a strong depiction of what can make two different people's experiences so different and i hear what you're saying and i appreciate it but you don't know Yeah, it's definitely about both. It's about the psychology of the people in the scene that we're watching. And then I think it's also about the underpinnings that give rise to it. Yeah, it's about the subjective experiences that ultimately are why injustice is wrong is because of the human experience that it affects. You know, Mm. this is a movie about social issues portrayed through the emotions of people who have to deal with them because that's what social issues are, a world of humans having experiences and that's very effective you know there are scenes in this movie where they do a slideshow briefly of you know period photographs of real things right while we hear tish the other lead's voice and she's the narrator of the book and she narrates and talks about the world and this saved him from the death that awaited the children of our age and though it took many forms the death itself was very simple the cause was simple too. That could seem so dry and far away and abstract if the mood hadn't been created. But this movie makes you feel like everything she's talking about is a subjective reality for a person, for some emotional being. Because, yeah, the music is stirring this pot of your brain. You know, it's like it's churning the butter of your brain in little circles. <laughs> yeah, little circle. Yeah, you could feel the, the little circles of the spatula here. I mean, I want to call out what it is insufficient to call the sex scene music. The <laughs> track on the album called Eros. He's got a track called Agape, Eros, and Philia, which is kind of pretentious, but it relates to the way that the movie works. It's about love and the role of love in people's lives and different forms that love takes. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the one called Eros, while the two characters are, you know, taking off their clothes and having sex, and it's like... Boy, do they look sad about it. Well, they're sort of bathed in emotion, which is what that kind of a scene, at least in this movie, really should be about. And he does this little classical thing with the strings... Sort of a, uh, 
say Bach. We say Bach all the time, but it's just a little kernel of pseudo Baroque stuff. I wanted to say Passacaglia for crying out loud. <laughs> well, I think that is the baseline. Is it not that baseline that you were referring to? Yeah, I'm saying that's the baseline that yeah. gets kind of corrupted and modified and overlaid on the blue and green later. But a Passacaglia is a Baroque composition in which there is a repeating baseline and then other stuff happens on top of it, to put it very simply. Yeah. Kind of how I thought of that, but I think it's what's the intention here is, you know, it's to take something steady, to take something predictable and repetitive and then turn it and let it evolve and move. You know, you get this sense of slowness and uh, blossoming. You feel sort of like you're watching a time-lapse movie of flowers blooming or something. It's Yeah, it's beautiful because it's about the state that they're in rather Mm -hmm. than events. It's somewhere in between a still photograph and storytelling, and it's a very special effect. It's been done with care for the effect, and I was really struck by how strong it was there because the technique is so exposed. I think even a listener who's not interested in music will have the thought, this is really just repeating, isn't it? And yet it works and does something poetic and affecting. Well, it is definitely repeating, but it's not exactly repeating. Like I said, it just keeps shifting a little bit as it goes along. Yeah, harmonically it's repeating, but it remains alive. Later on in the movie, he takes that, what I'm calling the Pazicaglia bass line, and he plays it on a solo cello, uh, and the chords are kind of paired back. cello throughout the score. In fact, I think there's sections that are scored for a whole ensemble of cellos. Wow. I read him saying that Barry Jenkins told him, Nicholas Bertel, early on that he had imagined the sound of brass behind this movie, that that was kind of the palette that was in his imagination. Well, there is some brass. There is some brass. And that the first thing Bertel wrote was, it's not used in the movie, but it's on the soundtrack, just a brass ensemble playing some material. thought that the overall color was right, but it didn't have quite the effect they wanted. And then when he transferred the material to cellos, he thought, well, that sounds like love. That relates to the emotion. Hmm. Cellos mean love, and now this works. And then the brass is present in these solo lines we were talking about, but it becomes kind of a highlighted sound rather than a full section. But it's also part of, there's a smoky muted trumpet on top of these ninth chords. Yeah, can we talk about these ninth chords? Sure, I wish you would. So there's these ninth chords that make up a, like a considerable proportion of what you hear in this movie. Uh-huh. And they kind of mean the city and the kind of forces of the city as a oppressive machine. Uh-huh. That is what that chord has meant since Taxi Driver, where it's exactly the same chord. I was about score. to say Taxi Driver. You got to say Taxi Driver first. I was also <laughs> thinking about saying Taxi Driver. Definitely sounds like the chords from Taxi Driver. Sounds a lot like Taxi Driver. <laughs> Definitely sounds like Taxi Driver. It kind of means what it means in Taxi Driver. It's kind of using the chord from Taxi Driver to resemble Taxi Driver to create kind of the mood from Taxi Driver. So that's Beale Street. Here's Taxi Driver.
I mean, heck, it sounds like the ninth chord with a smoky trumpet playing it from Chinatown, too. Yeah, and, you know, and Chinatown, but it's specific to Taxi Driver is that it's a very particular sound. All right. It definitely evokes kind of a noir sense of what a city is, and that's sure. a perfectly reasonable thing to pull into play here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's very effective. I think it's also very fair to say it sounds like Taxi Driver, which is the last score written by our uh, good friend of the show, Bernard Herman. Yeah. That which is totally a episode-worthy score. Oh, yeah. I just want to be clear that I was also going to say Taxi Driver. You can say it more times if you want. You said Have it. Have I made that clear? It's okay. pretty clear to me. Yeah. Uh, that's why I asked you if you wanted to talk about it. You could have yeah. jumped in. Right I could have jumped. Uh, that was my chance to say Taxi Driver first. <laughs> Next time. But those, you know, Chinatown and Taxi Driver are both... They are noir-ish movies. They play yeah. with ideas of noir anyway. And they're very much about... The hardening masculine effects of a rough world. And this is an extremely tenderness-oriented movie with dark stuff in it, but the emotional vibe of it is actually quite different. So I feel like he's entitled to, to use some of those sounds and sure. he's not repeating anything. Yeah, he's entitled. I, <laughs> I feel like it's the stated position of this podcast that, uh, yeah, you're entitled. Yeah, go for it. Do your thing. Well, anyway, this was pretty. Yeah, I really appreciated how methodical and considered it felt, and it made the movie feel methodical and considered. You know, this is not their first collaboration, Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Bertel. Notably, uh, he also wrote his score for the Oscar-winning Best Picture, Moonlight, which I think had a similar effect. Uh, you know, that was also some really lovely music and very well-chosen, simple, but philosophically opening and uh, worthwhile in that movie, too. I think it's a fruitful relationship. Yeah, I feel like the music was even more important in this one. I agree, I agree. But both movies are very affecting, you know. I can't say what emotion they evoke because many emotions. It's a very complicated... Yeah, many emotions. It's a complicated emotional proposition, what Barry Jenkins does. Yeah, I think it makes you feel many emotions and many complex emotions and gives you the feeling that they are all connected and, you know, what else do you want in your art? Yeah. So, uh, the four things. Effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, and relevance to the dramatic whole. Great. Effectiveness, craftsmanship, and relevance are all a highest mark. Yes. The creative substance is just below that because of this circular hypnotic quality we're talking about. There's a limited amount of material there, which is a great and correct choice. Yes. Yes. Here, here. Agreed. Really, really good. Yep. Okay. What's next, Andy? Next up is Isle of Dogs. Music by Alexandre Desplat. Isle of Dogs was produced by Wes Anderson, Scott Rudin, Stephen Rails, and Jeremy Dawson, and it was written and directed by Wes Anderson. This animated movie is set in a fantasy version of Japan. All the dogs in the city of Megasaki have been banished to Trash Island by a dog-hating mayor, and a pack of them, voiced by Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Bob Balaban, Bill Murray, and Jeff Goldblum, band together with a young boy played by Koyu Rankin to return to the mainland and overthrow the evil regime. Hmm. <laughs> Look, it's a weird movie. I, I think I mostly like it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Look, it's a weird movie is great. As soon as you said that, I thought, all right, we, we basically have covered it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's not that much more to say besides, look, it's a weird movie. It is weird. It's kind of a weird movie. It's a weird idea that he had about what movie to make. <laughs> yes. Which is okay, which is not bad, I guess. Look, I enjoyed it. I really like Wes Anderson's films. I think, well, let me uh, 
let me put some qualifications on that. I really like Wes Anderson's films that are scored by Alexandre Desplat. Oh, that's interesting. For me, there's a real dividing line. So here's, I'm going to give you my experience with Wes Anderson, the way things seems to me. The first one I saw was Rushmore, which was the first one that most people saw. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Loved the music for it by Mark Mothersbaugh. Yeah, ditto. Great. So far, I'm a John. Oh, good. (laughs) Next up was Royal Tenenbaums, and I liked that a little bit less. After that was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and I like that a little bit less again. I felt like it was trying to capture some sort of twee, quirky magic that didn't coalesce as well as it did in Rushmore. His first movie, Bottle Rocket, I only went and watched after having seen his other movies. Everything you have said so far, I'm 100% on board with. Fantastic. This progression of like, yeah, he had a good thing and then it's, you know, diminishing returns with it left me so that I did not, in fact, I've never yet seen Darjeeling Limited, which I think was his next film. Correct. So Mark Mothersbaugh scored those three films that I saw. Darjeeling Limited does not have a composer credited. I think it was a pure soundtrack score, which, you know, even when Wes Anderson is having really good original music written for his movies, he still does a lot of soundtrack picking and fills out the musical space with just songs he likes. Oh, he likes picking some songs he likes. (laughs) He really does. Anyway, I never saw that, and I was kind of ready to write him off. And then the next thing that happened was Fantastic Mr. Fox. And that's the first movie that Desplat scored for him. And I loved Fantastic Mr. Fox. And then I loved Moonrise Kingdom. And I loved Grand Budapest Hotel. I think that it's not a coincidence, perhaps, because I love Alexandre Desplat in general. And I think that he has a real affinity for the kind of quirky, twee, offbeatness that Wes Anderson goes for, and I think that he's able to give it a grounding that makes it successful. I don't think it's a coincidence that, for me, Wes Anderson's comeback, in my eyes, coincided with his collaboration with Displa. Yeah, I basically second all that. I think I am not... Oh, good, you're a John. I'm pretty much a John. I'm not maybe as entirely on board with the recent movies, I still hold out a kind of, is this working or is it doing the opposite of working? <laughs> Uncertainty as I watch them. But What's the opposite of working? I think for me, the line that Wes Anderson straddles is between giving me a joyous feeling that he's sharing something delightful with me and giving me an irritated feeling that he is showing off that he owns something delightful to me. <laughs> I don't always feel like I'm on the same side of that line, even through a single movie. Maybe it's on me, maybe it's on the movie making, but I do think that Desplat's contribution and the big idea that he brings to these things is a real asset in making it feel like it's something that's being shared with you rather than something that's being flaunted. Yeah, I think Desplat goes to a side of his writing that I really like that I don't think he always goes to, but I think he has this minimalist streak in his writing Mm -hmm. where he will set up a layer in motion. Here's a thing, it's going doop 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 We get exposed to it, it's doing the same thing. And here's another thing on top of it that's doing a different thing. It's repetitive and it's modular and it is spun out in these different layers on top of each other that can grow and shrink and move up and down. And I think that he does this very well and it's a style of composition that I feel sympathetic with. Like it's kind of instinctive 
complaints that I sometimes have. I feel like I get it. It's interesting that the effect you're talking about is almost exactly the same words we use to talk about Bernard Herrmann's compositional technique. Yeah, yeah. When Herrmann does it, the kind of primitive quality of that compositional technique is incidental. It's not the effect. It's kind of, you know, he's just using it with such force and such confidence that it works despite having this, you know, me composer, me add instrument quality to it. <laughs> But when Desplat does it for a Wes Anderson movie, the fact that it seems like a child's thought processes is the point. At its best, what Wes Anderson is going for is for everything to feel like the aesthetic world of being a child. Like everything on the screen is a collection in a child's cigar box where he keeps his collection. Everything is in a dollhouse. I think that's the spirit that he wants to get into. And Desplat, I think, is deliberately creating a dollhouse orchestra or a toy orchestra with you know five little toy members who are its elements and you should experience the happy child whose story this is you know picking up the drum guy and plopping him down and now he's in the scene yeah i think you're right i think the music really seems like the natural analog to the go-to wes anderson camera technique of having a long parallel sideways dolly shot I think of the classic Wes Anderson camera technique as a static shot of things arranged perfectly in a box. Okay, there's that. But he definitely goes a lot to, and both of these things kind of amount to the same thing in terms of what I'm about to say about them, that he goes to this thing where there's a long dolly track set up parallel to a long row of things, Mm -hmm. and the camera just rides along alongside them, and then you just see a sequence of things, and it's this perfectly straight-line parallel feel to it. And yeah, both in the very meticulously arranged still shot and these long pan shots, I feel like the idea is here are all of my things. Yeah. <laughs> I will now show you all. Here, here are all of my things. And I the way that Displa puts one instrument in and then you know does something with it so you know what it's doing and then puts another instrument in and then you can hear what that instrument is doing and takes them out puts them in turns them around it's a i think a really effective analog of like yeah here here are all my things i got a bunch of things to show you here are my things I want to call out that it's not the only response you could have to these movies, because I think that Wes Anderson is also trying to get across some underlayer of melancholy, poignancy, always an important element in these movies. Okay. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely is something that Wes Anderson wants, is to focus on the surface like a child would, and then have, you know, like in the back of a child's mind, or in the back of the adult mind that knows it's playing a nostalgic game, or something. There's some underlayer of poignancy. A composer might well come to these movies and think, hey, that's this unspoken element could really stand to be spoken. But I think that the sticking to the deadpan is exactly right. Yes. The music is absolutely deadpan, and that doesn't feel insufficient. It doesn't feel like it's taking the easy way out. It does it with care and taste, which is the Wes Anderson thing. Like, I might be showing you a 10-year-old's idea, but I'm not talking down to this, and Display isn't either. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he's doing it very sincerely. And I think with genuine sort of 
the light. I think that's another important aspect of the Wes Anderson Olio here is that it's just like sparkling with delight and fun and displays too. Yeah, and that's not to be taken for granted. Right. Finding the fun in something that can be very easily described in a paragraph what you're going to do, but actually doing it with a sense of fun is skill. It takes artistic ability. And it's not going to be fun automatically just by doing this kind of minimalistic technique of one instrument and then another instrument. Because, like I said, I think Desplat has a streak of doing this that I always enjoy. I want to call out a favorite score of mine that, I don't know if it's worthy of an episode of our show, but I'll call it out right now. I really liked what he wrote for this movie with uh, Ewan McGregor called The Ghost Writer. Not Ghost Rider. (laughs) The Ghost Writer. My reaction to that score was like, wow, this sounds like Bernard Herrmann crossed with Philip Glass or Steve Reich or something. It's repetitive in a minimalist way and instruments are arrayed on top of each other in these layers. But in that movie, it's a thriller. It's a, you know, action-y mystery thriller movie. And I think he pulls that off wonderfully as well. So I think, yeah, he just has a really, really good sense of when and how to spin his music out in this way. And, you know, I actually think that technique is a fun and interesting choice for an animated movie, a stop-motion animated movie. I think there's something that suggests animation, you know, a sequence of images that change just a little bit one at a time. I think there's something evocative in the way he sets these patterns in his instruments and have them change a little bit. It kind of gives the sense of being, you know, discrete parcels of time, like a Zeno's paradox or something. Mm -hmm. The way that the stop motion coalesces into uh, continuous motion, but a little slightly choppy continuous motion. I just thought that was, you know, a cool matching there. Yeah, I think the fact that the movie's technique is stop motion and has that kind of naive, stilted quality to it is part of the aesthetic effect they're going for. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is kind of an analog to that a naive, stilted way of using the orchestra. Yeah. So let's talk about the specific miniature toy orchestra that he uses for this movie. Sure. So Isle of Dogs takes place in a make-believe version of Japan that exists in Wes Anderson's imagination, and he's very forthright about its fantasial qualities, fantasist qualities, but it also <laughs> has a lot of real Japanese voice actors and Japanese text on screen and Japanese things. And Japanese instruments. We hear the taiko drums, which are probably, if forced to name a Japanese instrument, probably the first thing most people would go to, maybe, or the second or third, but one of the top Japanese instruments are these big drums that get played. uh, Parts of ceremonies for many different things. uh, I think actually taiko just basically means drums in Japan, and there's many different, you know, sub-traditions that get lumped together as taiko, but there's definitely a sound of these instruments. There's a set of instruments that it refers to that they're very big, and then there's smaller ones that, like woodblock sound, Well, there's a performance of them that is animated. The opening credits happen over a taiko performance. Right. And that piece of music, the pure taiko music, is not written by Desplat. It's by a taiko specialist musician who uh, wrote additional music for this movie. But then Desplat uses some taiko drums as part of his little miniature orchestra, and they're basically the backbone of the entire score. Yeah, they play, like, a lot of the time. They play pretty continuously. Yeah, they're the backbone that other stuff gets added onto a lot of the time in this way, I know what I'm saying. I think it kind of goes to show that just uh, having some 
continuous taiko drumming under anything sort of makes it feel like something. Like here, we've been having some, uh, just some taiko drumming under us talking, and it feels like we are part of a thing that is a thing of something, doesn't it? I think they're used for dramatic accompaniment. I think they're used in kabuki performance and no performance yeah, yeah, that's right. in Japan. Probably not with quite the rhythms that Display uses here, which mostly accompany a little boy and some talking dogs having a kind of action movie, spy movie riff. So all this drumming kind of creates a here we go on an adventure. What we're doing now is dangerous and daring kid style quality. He is just keeping a ball up in the air. He's keeping the Wes Anderson ball floating by by just saying, yep, this weird collection of stuff and odd plot elements, it all adds up to something. It's all part of this. uh... Yeah, like a kid saying, wait, wait, I'm not done. Listen, listen. And then this happened. And then this happened. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the kid is cute enough, you'll keep listening. I think this plot is cute enough is what I'm saying. I think that's right. And I think the animation is cute enough and the whole movie is running on that kind of energy. Yeah. But anyway, as with Bernard Herrmann, a lot of the artistic choice is really just made in picking the instruments. So the other instruments here are not Japanese instruments, although you can kind of see how he got to them. His orchestra, at least is credited at the end, is in addition to six taiko drummers, he's got four recorders. Four saxophones. Three French horns. A piano doubling celeste. One double bass. And then a male chorus. And a partridge in a pear tree. You may have also noticed there that the entire score is in exactly the same tempo. It's just a steady beat from beginning of the movie to the end. But anyway, this particular instrumentation, which basically is the identity of the whole score and is the major thing the score is putting across, is this sound. Mm -hmm. It's just worth calling out the bold choice that is to make that orchestra. It doesn't have any strings. It doesn't have a full enough brass or woodwind section to make the sound of a section. It just has these individual instruments in small groups. I think what went on is Wes Anderson, as he always does, picked some tracks from his record collection. Uh Yeah. I think Displot took those tracks and kind of let them define the palette the way that uh, you know a graphic designer would look for the colors in the pre-existing elements one of these tracks that we hear more than once in the movie is the theme from seven samurai yeah seven samurai i recognize that because of when you played it in our magnificent seven episode that's right this isn't the first time we have played this bit of music on this podcast right this theme by uh, fumio hayasaka it notably, I think I even called this out on the Magnificent Seven episode, it has yes, saxophones, saxophones in it. Yeah. It has these baritone sax sounds. And that's a distinctive part of Seven Samurai. And I think Desplan must have picked up those saxophones from there. Yeah, that's a good guess. He uses them in a very similar way to kind of be this uh, horizon line. It's like a low-to-the-ground sound that they're walking over. That's how it reads to me. And then the other distinctive timbre in his orchestra is these recorders. There's a clip we hear, again, more than once, of an arrangement of 
a piece from Lieutenant Kijay Beprokofiev, right. but arranged for a uh, kind of wacky swing band, uh, the Sauter Finnegan Band in the early 50s. And it has this prominent two piccolos playing the theme, which then uh, sort of show up in the orchestra as the recorders, I think. Yeah, this piece of music by Prokofiev might be familiar to moviegoers as being all throughout the Woody Allen movie Love and Death. That's right. Or it might be familiar to moviegoers who are fans of 1934's Lieutenant Kijé, from which it comes originally. It is part of a movie score. Yeah, but (laughs) those moviegoers have went... Also probably worth noting that there is a whistler credited as a musician, uh, because whistling is sort of an important part of the movie. To the degree that there is a recurring theme in this movie, it really is just this thing that the character whistles. There's a long version of it, but it's really three notes. Mm -hmm. Which is appropriate to the miniatures within miniatures quality of the movie, that the tune is three notes. Well, I thought he actually had a few different groups of three notes. There's the one that you hear over the faux traditional tale of the backstory of the dog and cat version of Japan. Oh, that's true. The low voice three notes. That's a different three notes. You're right. It's a different three notes, and then the action in the body of the movie is dominated, yeah, by these three notes of the dog whistle that the kid does, and then the dogs do as well. Wes Anderson is known for his soundtrack albums where they are very much like mixtapes, and I feel like his movies kind of function the way mixtapes do, like when teenagers make these tapes for each other, and it's supposed to be intensely meaningful and intensely personal, but it also is all found objects, and you don't have to actually reveal your own emotions. You're just sort of pointing at things that are your taste, and then maybe someone will read into it what your deeper emotions are, but you never say what they are, and that's kind of how Wes Anderson functions and that's kind of I think what Desplat knows to match here yeah the music should never express an emotion (laughs) it should just express taste and then if you are the person for whom the mixtape was intended maybe you will be able to deduce what emotion was somewhere in the distance behind it but otherwise it's just a surface that's a good observation and I think that for The previous three Wes Anderson movies, I really, really dug that mixtape. And I'll say again, I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the ones that Displace scored. I think that having this music that is really expertly conveying how cool it is to pick out certain things and kind of childishly obsess over them, I think it gels really, really well with his aesthetic. I think I probably like this movie a bit less than those other three at the end of the day. And, you know, Desplat won the Oscar for best score for the Grand Budapest Hotel. So uh, so you think this Oscar has already been awarded, basically? Yeah, exactly. I feel like he's sort of already gotten the award for doing this work, which I was very happy that he did at the time. Okay, so what's your uh, what's your rating of this score? I mean, again, I'll say the words. Effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, relevance to the dramatic whole. I think effectiveness, craftsmanship, and relevance to the dramatic whole are just top marks. Yeah, yeah creative substance it's just deliberately minimal right it's like you make some 
stylish choices and then stick to your guns and that's the game and he's doing a wonderful job of it and i basically agree with you that it's the same game in each of these movies so you know yeah i don't think he needs to win it again it's good but does it deserve an oscar (laughs) (laughs) i don't know andy well there's one more option that might deserve an oscar instead what's the last nominee on the list andy uh i'm not sure but i wait what's that in the sky (laughs) what it's some lady. Oh, which lady? I don't know. She has to get closer. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's Emily Blunt. Oh, I like that lady. She's returning. Wait, she's returning? Yes. Emily Blunt returned. Yes. In fact, Mary Poppins returns. And the music for Mary Poppins Returns was written by Mark Shaman. Mary Poppins Returns was written by David McGee. It was produced by Rob Marshall, John DeLuca, and Mark Platt, and it was directed by Rob Marshall. It stars Emily Blunt as the titular magical nanny who, yes, returns to the same Banks family whom she visited when she was Julie Andrews, now that the children are grown and Michael has children of his own. She and her pal Jack the Lamplighter, played by Lin-Manuel Miranda, lead the children on a magical song-filled adventure to save the family's home from the clutches of the bank manager, played by Colin Firth. And along the way, they get input from the likes of Meryl Streep, Dick Van Dyke, and Angela Lansbury. Cameo spoiler. (laughs) All right, first things first, John. I know you like when I read from the rules. Okay. (laughs) I just want you to know that uh, Rule 15 Special Rules for the Music Awards Section 1 categories, A is original score, Uh B is original song, Right. and that's it, right? Well, wait a second. There's oh. a section C, original musical. Oh. An original musical consists of not fewer than five original songs by the same writer or team of writers, either used as voiceovers or visually performed, da, 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 da. And you might be thinking to yourself, I didn't know that category existed. Yeah. In fact, I was thinking that very thing. That category does not exist. Aha. Because when you go you to me. section 4F, the category of original musical may be activated only by special request of the Music Branch Executive Committee to the Board of Governors in a year when the field of eligible submissions is determined to be of sufficient quantity and quality to justify award competition. Wow. I'm not sure that that award has ever been awarded. Here's, a, here's what it says on Wikipedia. It's a category that was reestablished in the year 2000 mm. after the Best Original Musical or Comedy Score category was retired. It has never been awarded in its present form due to a prolonged drought of films meeting the sufficient eligibility requirements. Well, I got to tell you, I am willing to hand that award to this movie right now. Who is it up against? I think it is unopposed. Sure. John, go ahead. Grant it, Best Original Music. Sure. The point is, we are oddly, perversely, not here to discuss it qua musical. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering how you were going to treat this because, yeah, it's full of songs. And songs, I've kind of been uh, quick to point out that they aren't score. And there is a lot of score in this movie. You know, interstitial music that underscores just dialogue scenes and action moments and all of that. And I suppose that technically that is what is nominated here. I believe that that is what is in competition. Hmm. But this is such a strange and artificial boundary that gets drawn. I mean, I kind of feel like I'm willing to stretch my boundaries in the case of a explicit musical where the characters are singing and dancing on screen. I hate musicals where they dance off screen. Yeah, it's just noisy. (laughs) And then, you know, the material that makes up the interstitial score is totally drawn out of, you know, the music for the songs. And I think that it is kind of fair for our purposes to include the songs in 
an original musical into our score discussion because it's part of the way that the music is telling the story. Yeah, and furthermore, the function of the incidental music, the underscore, in a musical is very specifically to keep alive the dramatic logic of the musical in between songs. Yes. So it's not as though they can be separated in some clean way. And I think that endeavor, keeping alive the dramatic logic of what the songs represent, is actually done quite neatly in this movie and in its score. All right, well, here we go into opinions. John, what did you think of Mary Poppins (laughs) Returns? (sighs) I think this is pretty good. What do you want from me? (laughs) Uh, It's okay. But does it deserve an Oscar? (laughs) Uh, Okay, like, I was willing to grant this movie a lot of goodwill. I think that it had a real good heart about it, and it put in a lot of earnest effort, and I really do have genuine admiration for what, again, I'm going to call super aggressively competent work here. It's really unstoppably, wonderfully competent, I think, in making it sound like a big, sparkly musical production. I thought this was a valiant effort. You used the word effort, too. I felt aware of effort. Yeah, that's a very fair point. Here's my line on the movie, John. Get ready for this. Here's <laughs> here's my line. Okay. A lot of interviews, people say, including Mark Shaman, that this movie is a love letter to the original. Yep. Whatever kind of letter you're going to write, it's supposed to be addressed to the audience. <laughs> Okay. That's my final line of my film review when I write it for newspaper of this movie. (laughs) I felt aware of an incredibly elaborate, well-intentioned, skilled effort to do something that uh, is somewhere to the side of giving me a satisfying movie musical experience. Okay, I I can get on board with that uh, diagnosis. I mean, I can't deny that, yes, you feel that effort and that it's a bizarre thing to set out to do to make something that is so constrained by being another installment of a different thing that everybody has loved for a long time. To the song. Yeah, beat for beat, exactly. There is a precise analog for each one of these songs in the original Mary Poppins. But... I am glad to hear you agree at least that it was well-intentioned and that it was skilled. I was kind of won over enough by those facts to enjoy it. I can't say that I enjoyed it, but I did admire it, and I was impressed with the degree of knowledge and understanding of the old style that was expressed through the way that Shaman wrote this score. Mm -hmm. I saw lots of interviews with Mark Shaman where he basically said that the score to Mary Poppins is his foundational text as a musician, as a composer of musicals. He feels like he learned everything from that. All his work aspires to be that. I think that comes across. I think you get the sense of someone who worships everything about this, including very fine details, Mm -hmm. and I appreciated that. It was rewarding in a certain way to be in the presence of that. Yeah, it is. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's unstoppably competent. It has the twinkle that you need. Like, you really just can't make a musical movie without the interstitial music sewing everything together and becoming the air that the characters breathe and keeping aloft this sense of a jolly, magical romp. And I really think it did that, and... uh, Really? I want you to really put your cards on the table. You felt that this movie was a jolly, magical romp? (laughs) I I thought that it was pretty jolly, fairly magical, and rompish. Semi-romp. I'm going to pitch my review of it. Medium, medium jolly, magical romp.
you know, like that's how I order my steaks. That's what I thought of this movie. I'm dubious and I don't need to express it just as cynicism. I am not sure what the dramatic intent of this movie in itself as a story I don't really have a sense of what Mary Poppins's function in the lives of these characters is supposed to be. I was trying to find the dramatic purpose that the music was serving to gauge how well I thought it was doing that. And the only purpose I could find was one of relating to the original movie, Mary Poppins. No, that's a fair point. I think that that was really the top item on the agenda was to relate to the original Mary Poppins. I agree. It doesn't really stand up to scrutiny about what it's about or why any of the things are happening. I'm just saying I was willing to suspend that scrutiny. Uh, because you sensed goodwill and you brought goodwill in response. I respect that. That's right. And skill. Genuine skill. Genuine chops at making an orchestra go presto kazam magic fun. So like, let's see. Here's an example we can debate. The first major piece of underscoring that isn't a song is this kite flying moment, which is when Mary Poppins arrives the music is in a frenzy of high stakes, you know, threat and danger and just illustrating on the grandest scale. It seemed so outsized. You know, it's done beautifully. And I sense Mark Shaman loving his work here. And the sound of the orchestra is a pleasure. Yeah. But what, what is the tone in this scene? I don't understand it. If your complaints about this movie are going to be, yeah, but what does it mean? Yeah, but why is this happening? I can't disagree. I'm just going to say that he did a professional enough job. Yeah, and loved doing it enough that it didn't bother me. That I wasn't inspired to delve too much deeper. I will take your guideline from here out that we're really just talking about the craftsmanship, the musicianship. Let's just talk about that. That's fine. I've said my piece about the movie. <laughs> I mean, but look, I'll go back to what I said a little while ago about how the interstitial non-song score is keeping the dramatic logic of the songs alive in valuable ways. Okay. So we were saying that each of these songs is kind of a beat-for-beat beat analog of songs from the original Mary Poppins. So the song that is occupying this spot that Feed the Birds did in the original, where Mary Poppins is singing a kind of instructive lullaby to the kids as they fall asleep. In this case, Mary Poppins sings this, I think, pretty touching song called The Place Where Lost Things Go. And it's about the children, you know, miss their sadly dead mother, but she's still alive in their memory. Maybe all those things that you love so are waiting in the place where the lost things go. So the tune from that song shows up in some fun and interesting places, like the punchline happy ending moment when they finally find the stock certificate that they need right on the revelation shot where we see that's what it is. You hear the phrase, the place where lost things go. Look, can you see? That's all of us together in front of the... Um, 
What is it, Father? Because what now is... we found a lost thing, and here is where it went. And then it's all tied together with the emotions of holding memories of your dear departed ones in your head and keeping alive, blah, blah, blah. And or your stock certificates. Yes, and or your stock certificates. It can be the same emotion. Look, don't don't subject it to scrutiny, okay? Okay, uh, okay. I said, I promise. You know, all that kind of stuff is all throughout the movie. It's just very, very well laid out in that way. Just the architecture of it. The songs are set up smoothly and effectively. It's really clear what the emotion of each song is, what function it serves in the story. It makes no sense. If it makes no sense, it can't be true. John, you're right. It's good to know you're bright. For you know, like I accompany improvised musicals sometimes when I play improv comedy piano, and I think this movie would be a really good movie to study if you're gonna do improvised musicals because the offer, to use an improv term, of what each song is about and what it should do is so clear. <sighs> I think that that's true in a sense, and maybe this will sound just like snobbery, but... I swear, I mean it. <laughs> Great. Something that Mark Shaman is famous for is writing tongue-in-cheek musical numbers for, for example, the Oscars. So Anthony Hopkins, you can laugh, but someday soon you'll see Right, he wrote some of those Billy Crystal songs, right? Yeah, that's the kind of thing he has been doing for a long time. In addition to all kinds of work, writing real Broadway musicals, writing lots of film scores, he's versatile and talented and has been working a long time, and I have great respect for what he does. In fact, here he is singing a little bit of a song that he wrote about his career writing like film scores. The one before, but as I finish the last chord, the preview cards come back, they're bored, so they postpone the scoring, maybe three weeks, maybe four. I look up from the floor and hear my agent telling someone, yes, he's free, and by the way, I've raised his feet. Oh, God, I've barely time to pee. I guess it's a success. Yes! So he's this kind of genial, goofy-ish guy. He wrote songs for, like, the South Park musical yeah. movie. And that's been a thing that he is known for for a while, writing musical songs that are presented in a context where it's kind of tongue-in-cheek that it is a musical song. And <laughs> it's kind of the razzmatazz of Broadway is its own punchline it's at kind of a remove from the thing itself even though it brings all of this genuine craft to it in fact i would say that the joke of a lot of these songs is that the craft is so perfect and so by the book that it becomes camp so i agree with you that mary poppins returns has excellent clear indicating but uh there's this difference between indicating a thing and being the thing itself when you compare it to the craft of the Sherman Brothers who wrote the original, which how can you not compare it since it basically exists as a comparison? Yeah, no, you have to. It's begging you to compare it. I mean, they've written a song here that the assignment seems to have been, can you please write, <laughs> let's go fly a kite, but you are not allowed to use the words fly or kite. <laughs> Nowhere to go but up. 
Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how close this stuff is. Like the assignment, can you write a song somehow about being on the ceiling in some way? <laughs> yes, I think it is unavoidable that the Sherman Brothers, the original Mary Poppins, 1964, one of probably the greatest thing to come out of the Disney studios, its strength is in its purity and simplicity and mm -hmm. in fact in prepping for this i read some interviews with the shermans which were all interesting and one of the things that really stood out to me was richard m sherman in a recent interview talking about the song chim chimini chim chimini chim chim tree Chiru. i think it's both as sweep is as lucky as lucky can be oh then the next thing is Chiru and something that rhymes with true yeah Chiru, and when he shakes hands with you Pardon me. He said they had written that, and if you think about that song, it's just that tune. And that's lucky too. And that's it, then it just repeats. And he said they had written that, and he thought, well, for form's sake, it probably needs to have a bridge. I need to write more. And his brother said, no, this is it. This is right. Don't change it. Christ, you're going to screw it up. <laughs> and then he said in the interview, if he had added to it, it probably wouldn't have won the award for best song. Yes. It probably wouldn't have been as charismatic. It probably wouldn't have lasted as long. That's a very high standard of kind of jewel-like clarity yeah. that those guys were able to hit in their best songs. And this feels like a lot of effort to kind of go in that direction. When the early morning hours have come and gone. Through the misty morning showers I greet the dawn For when its light has hit the ground There's lots of treasures to be found Underneath the lovely London sky It's clear about its intentions, but it, uh, it never really sparkled that way. And it's snobby because that's hard, but that's the assignment these guys took on. No, here's where I agree with you. When you compare these songs to the Sherman Brothers songs, yeah, that's very well said. They don't have the jewel-like clarity and perfection. I mean, I've been complimenting the craft of it, and I maintain that. But yes, since we have to compare it to those, they don't have that magical it that makes them feel perfect and just so. I've been trying to articulate, I mean, gee, if I could articulate exactly what it is that makes a perfect sounding song, then, yeah, you know. take that to the bank. I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Take yeah. that to the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank. So Shaman writes the music, and he and his songwriting partner, Scott Whitman, collaborate on the lyrics. And I think their lyric writing is strong. I think it's fair to say their songs are more lyrics forward than the Sherman Brothers songs. I think they're cramming a lot of words in there, and I think they're more intent to cram a lot of words in there. And I think they do it pretty well. Like, you know, I just want to, here's a lyric out of that Meryl Streep song where they're on the ceiling because everything is upside down. The song is called Turning Turtle. And uh, she says, I cannot help this charming troupe. Don't mock me because I'm in the soup. I cannot help this charming troupe. Don't mock me because I'm in the soup. And why? Because the world is turning turtle. Come on, that's pretty good. Mock turtle soup, right? You don't like it? That was my least favorite of the songs. Okay. And I think that if you compare that to I, I love, love to, to laugh. laugh, loud and long and clear. I love to laugh, <laughs> loud and long and clear. I love to laugh, <laughs> it's getting worse every year. <laughs> That's songwriting. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, I mean, I'm joking a little, but when you say that you think that he uh, has this strength of putting all these words in, I don't know, man. I don't know about your value system. There. No, no. Listen, we're, we're in agreement, Andy, because I'm saying that he is good at coming up with a lot of words. I think he trades that off for the perfection of the melodies and of the song overall. Well, I would consider that the perfected state of lyrics are the lyrics that live with melody. I also read in the thing that they came up with Spoonful of Sugar, they had this idea that maybe they could do a song about Spoonful of Sugar, and then he just walked around all day going, Spoonful of Sugar helps the medicine go down, until that became a melody in his head. Spoonful of Sugar helps the medicine go down. Well, see, that's the thing that they were willing to do that Shaman doesn't do, because he's got so many words. Yeah, look, I have admiration for coming up with a lot of rhyming words that you can rattle off. Uh, you know, I'm still on the Hamilton high, but... Well, let's, we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> but yes, I agree that it is not, at least in these songs, it is not the ideal balance to strike in songwriting. And the thing that he doesn't do is repeat the same lyrics. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Yeah. The medicine go down. Amen. Feed the birds, tuppence a bag. Yeah, talk about a brilliant lyric. Tuppence, tuppence, tuppence a bag. That is writing. Chim chiminy, chim chiminy, chim chim chiru. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cheree. Yeah, you have to repeat it because it is music. Because it's music. There you thank you, Your Excellency. And so let's listen to Mark Shaman's big theme, the Mary Poppins identifying song in this one. Her first song that yep. she sings, it's used as the main title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine that? Some people like to splash and play. Can you imagine that? And take a seaside holiday. Can you imagine that? On the first hand, I admire this tune for really being right in the pocket of the kind of make-believe 1910s music hall style that the Shermans made up for Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. This sounds just like that. This goes right in that style, and it is satisfying to hear something placed there. I can enjoy the sound of that. On the other hand, try singing this song, and you will find that it is not conducive to being sung, especially by children or people who are just going to walk out humming the tune from the movie. Yeah. It kind of gets in your head, but you can't sing it. It's You have to go up an arpeggio of a... <laughs> it's hard to hit the notes for several reasons, and that's not what we want. Yeah, well, he really hits hard in this movie that the opening phrase of, can you imagine that, bum ba ba dum bum ba dum is the identifying fanfare ID tag for Mary Poppins. When she first emerges out of the clouds, whenever she does something, that's her little motif. And he makes great hay out of that association. Yeah, I think it's not quite there for a few reasons. Yeah, first is, I think, what you said. It's hard to sing because that first interval, what is it? Dun, 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 you know, you're overshooting the note in the chord and then having to resolve back up to it, which is, you know, maybe not a great choice for the thing that you want everybody to immediately identify and be able to sing. But then also, you know, we do get some glimpses of the Sherman Brothers tunes. Yeah. Like when Mary Poppins is revealed to the kids from the first movie, now grown up, this coquettish shot of her under her hat. And we hear a little glimpse of Spoonful of Sugar, and it's a breath of fresh air. Mary Poppins. And it kind of shows up the Can You Imagine That hook <laughs> when you hear it there. And one of the reasons is, you know... 
What, what are the words to that? Just a spoonful of sugar, John? Just a spoonful of sugar. The iconic, memorable phrase, spoonful of sugar, is in the tune that you hear. Oh, I see where you're going, yeah. What are the words to... What are the words to that? Um, there's something different in every verse. It's the beginning of the verse. without a recipe, can you imagine that? And heaven It's not can you imagine that. The tune for the title phrase of the song is... Like a nothing, it's just a tale. Can you imagine that? It's just like the afterthought of the phrase. You want us to like remember a a little cellular idea. It really helps to be tied to words we remember. Like a spoonful of sugar. Yeah. Like let's go fly a kite. Yes. You can hear the tune to those when I say the words. If I hummed the tune, you would hear the words. Yeah. But it's just there's not enough there there. It feels like something written at the piano rather than in the voice. Yes, that's a good point, too. As do a lot of things here. I feel bad being so critical of this because if they had just made it be something other than Mary Poppins 2, it's all very, as you said, competent, and it has charm and cheer and skill and... um, Okay, let's talk about Mr. Hamilton, who's in this. So Lin-Manuel Miranda is in this as Dick Manuel Dyke. And there's just this weird sense of Mark Shaman trying to you know, show that he's aware of who Lin-Manuel Miranda is. He gives him a patter song to sing. Yeah. Not very similar to the rap he does as himself, but uh, related. And it's awkward, and I felt uncomfortable. The moral lessons bring me all the land professors. Then she went to the hairdressers, and they came from the east, and they came from the south from each college they pull knowledge from their brains into his mouth but the king yeah. also john when the actual <laughs> shows up at the end he's so much better than everyone else in the movie yeah. i wish they had made the movie <laughs> so about him when they tell you that you're finished and your chance to dance is done that's the time to stand to strike up the band and tell them that you've just begun so when life yeah i mean his role in the plot is a little far-fetched like this kind of thing really doesn't stand up to scrutiny it's a real <laughs> dick van machina deus van dyke which do you like better yeah he had the spirit of the original and um i missed him what do you think about angela lansbury Inside the balloon And if you hear a tune There's nowhere to go But up Well, clearly they had written that for Julie Andrews to do it And then Uh Julie Andrews, I read why she wasn't in it She said, I don't want people to be distracted And say, oh, there's that Mary Poppins showing up And stealing the spotlight This is, you know, Emily Blunt is going to be her own character And I, I don't want to interfere with that Very smart, Dame Julie. I wish the rest of the production had been so smart. (laughs) You know, I'm going to say, I think I like Emily Blunt's characterization of Mary Poppins better than Julie Andrews's. I think she did a great job. But it also was impossible to miss the fact that, look, Emily Blunt sings perfectly nicely, but it really helps Mary Poppins to have just a preternaturally, glisteningly perfect voice. his voice is the star of the movie yeah it's magical it's an actual generational talent of an instrument julie andrew's voice was and you know no knock on emily blunt hers is not i'll admit something else about the original mary poppins when i was a kid i kind of didn't like this movie tut tut john yeah for shame why i just thought it was weird that there was this lady with magic powers who the whole time was kind of mad at you for noticing that she has magic powers (laughs) it felt weird to me (laughs) 
Uh, while we're off to the side here, can we address the cliche that is in this movie of when Mary Poppins is in the fantasy animated world, which you got to admit, it was nice to see hand-drawn animation. Oh, beautiful. That was the best part by yeah. far. When Emily Blunt stands up on the music hall stage to sing a song, she calls out to the band, D-flat. And no, I couldn't possibly. D-flat major. Was it in D-flat? You know, it was in D-flat. I'll give it that. That's something that it has over Back to the Future. <laughs> when Marty McFly says, uh, blues, blues riff in B. And it's not in B. They play in B-flat, yeah. But anyway, this thing, you've played in a lot of pit bands. Has there ever been a situation in which a performer would call out a key to the band and the whole band would just have to, what, sight transpose their parts? I can't imagine that ever happening. Yeah, I think that that trope is for you're supposed to call to just a pianist and they handle it. But um, Like it's in Singing in the Rain? It's a cartoon band, John. <laughs> okay. All right. I just That's my PSA here. Don't... Uh, don't just shout a key at an orchestra. That can't happen. Yeah, also, listen, don't shout it just to a pianist either it's not nice <laughs> okay just a couple other things about the actual underscore sure there are parts of this that escape the orbit of the style established by the original mary poppins to no end other than a sense of you know even more dilution of the identity of the movie at least to my ear there are places where it sounds like a contemporary comedy movie the kids are running around in the bank and you hear this kind of scurrying around music <laughs> I went back yeah. to listen to what kind of underscore there is in the original Mary Poppins, and it's quite simple. Hmm. It's quite bare. It's usually just the strings and a couple of little solo instruments. Or, uh, you know, here's Dick Van Dyke on the uh, fox hunt horse in the animated world. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a couple of horns going, da -da -da -da. and that's it. We get it. It's a fox hunt. It's done. Yikes! <laughs> underscore function has been served. In the Mark Shaman score, there's a chase scene in essentially the same spot in the movie, and it's the full orchestra going full force. I feel like the overkill and willingness to go toward other traditions of underscoring worked against the impact of the movie because, you know, it gave that feeling of pushing, like this was a big, heavy elephant that needed to be pushed up a hill. And it may have been, but that's a thought I had. That's very interesting because I kept thinking, oh, you know, wow, there's so much energy in this music and it's really churning away the magic to tell me how magical it is. And yeah. like I said, I went along with it and was willing to take its word for it about the magic. And it did feel like it was necessary to me to create this musical environment. But you're telling me that that is the subject of inflation over the years. And that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely inflation. And I have a rant and now is my time for it. Oh, what? John, I hate Mark Tree. I hate the Mark Tree. <laughs> a Mark Tree is a lot of dangling tiny chimes that when you run something over it makes a magical whispery whoosh. The sound of magic. The sound of magic inflation. You said that this has gotten inflated over the years and that is my rant. Okay. We used to be able to feel magic without the instrument being placed in your ear at the end of every 16 bar phrase there's not a single mark tree in the original mary poppins and it's doing just fine and in this movie like within the first 10 seconds oh, i hate that so much uh and now our listeners can decide what they think next time they hear a mark tree in orchestration 
So he already did it again. It's twice in a row. To my ear, that's like, it jumps out and says, you are not in the past. You are in the sleazy, over-slick present. Hmm. Yeah, it's saccharine for sure. Yeah. It's uh, sugar on a candy cane. It is. Yeah, that's well said. You agree with me? Yeah, fine. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm overall kind of more content to let the kids stay on my lawn than you are, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Stop bringing your damn Mark Tree around here. (laughs) Did you know that it's called Mark Tree because it's named after someone named Mark? Mark Tree, I assume? (laughs) (laughs) I think not. I think it's shaped like a tree. Why don't you just go ahead and give your ranking so that I can say that I mostly agree with them and then we can be done. Effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, relevance to the dramatic whole. Craftsmanship, I'm giving top marks even with my nitpicking. (laughs) It's impressive and it's satisfying and it's a pleasure. Good. I agree. I'm glad that you agree on that count. The other ones... uh, uh, All right. This movie was was rough for me. (sighs) I think this is pretty good. What do you want from me? I mean, it's okay, but does it deserve an Oscar? Well, we're now finally in a position to say what we think does deserve an Oscar. You know... The two picks that we're going to make here, what we think is the best and what we think is going to win, I'm willing to bet that we're going to pretty easily have the same answers to those two questions. Uh, Okay, I'm not sure I'm able to make the meta bet because I'm not sure about one of them. Let's discuss. Okay, well, let's at the same time say which score is our favorite. I think it's been pretty clear, right? Mm -hmm. One, two, three... If Beale Beale Street Street could could talk. talk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think for both of us, that was the most artistically satisfying. It gelled with its movie and its subject matter in a way that really helped you to experience the emotions. And it was finally accomplished. Yeah. If you take importance of music to the movie and multiply it by quality and effective music, that one has by far the highest product. I like that formula. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear what the answer is to what is going to win. Do you? Uh, then tell me, because I think it's not okay. super clear. I think it's Black Panther. I think Black Panther's going to win in a walk. I thought that Beale Street and Black Panther have both reasonable odds, and that Isle of Dogs is not going to win, Yep. and the other two are in a no-man's land. As has already been discussed... That's okay because Displa got the Oscar for his last Wes Anderson movie. I agree. I also think that it's all okay because despite us doing an <laughs> infinitely long podcast about this, it's just not a very important award. Yes, you've made this clear. If Mary Poppins or Black Klansman wins, I'll go, huh, didn't see that coming. And of the other two, yeah, you think Black Panther's a walk. Tell me why. Because I think that it's not going to win Best Picture. This is kind of the opposite of what I said last year, that the whatever wins Best Picture wins Best Score. I think in this particular case, voters are not going to vote for it for Best Picture, but they're going to feel bad about it. And they're going to give it the ancillary awards along the way. People are going to feel a certain obligation towards it because of the phenomenon that it is. And they're going to feel like they are fulfilling their obligation by giving it to the thing with, you know, the biggest uh, machine of oiled parts, like you said before, you know, which there's validity to that in its way. But I think really it's going to be because, look, we love Black Panther. We're giving it all these other awards. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, to make this interesting, I will make my official on-air prediction be Beale Street. Because my thinking was that the typical academy voter is going to remember that they heard music and felt something while hearing it while watching if beale street could talk in fact that might be one Hmm. of the main things they remember about that movie and when they get to this category they might go oh yeah that was the one with uh that pretty music that made me feel something i think that recognizing that black panther had a good score takes a slightly more analytical kind of technically oriented 
attitude. And I just yeah. wonder how many people are going to go there. But your sort of political consolation prize thing is also plausible to me. But I'm going to go with the, I think people are going to see this and they're going to go, yeah, I know which one of these had good music. It was if Beale Street could talk. I remember that. That's fair. I, I would obviously be happy if that was the case. But Black Panther's nominated for sound mixing for sure as well, right? Yeah. I think it's definitely going to win that in kind of the same thought. Wow, there was a lot of stuff in that movie and it added up to something that people really liked. So all the stuff must have been good. And I think a lot of the stuff was, in fact, good. Yeah. And I do think it has an extra edge where people are going like, that was a very special episode of yes. Marvel movies. Yeah. And we want to recognize that. And the music is totally a participant in that very specialness with all of the African yep. elements. Yep, yep, yep. I think there might well be a kind of, yeah, sure. Okay. But my even lazier voter than I'm imagining just goes for <laughs> Beale Street. Well, I guess that's really what it comes down to, is exactly how lazy are the Oscar voters for score. Hey, guess what, Andy? I think we're done. Phew. Phew is right. There's a lot of movies to uh, watch and then talk about. Yeah, it's almost five times as many movies as we usually deal with. Right. Almost, because the movies we usually deal with are <laughs> two times as many as each of these movies. <sighs> but not next time. Guess what we get to do next time, Andy? Uh, I know what we get to do. We get to make another episode about a fun movie that most people like. Yeah, a score that most people like also. Yeah. We're at number one. We made it to the top. We climbed this mountain. Are you a little bittersweet about it? Not really, no. Okay, uh, good news. Because we haven't done it yet. All right, I'll ask you again when we're done with it. Are you, John? I am a little, sure. Okay. Because when next we get to the end of an episode, it will be the end of the episode about John Williams' score for Star Wars at long last. Mm-hmm. Well, we gotta we gotta stop this thing now. Yeah, thanks for listening. As usual, you can tweet at us at Score Settlers at at Score Settlers. You can just say one at. That's at Score Settlers with one at. <laughs> Leave a review on iTunes if it's a nice review, or you know if you have a mean review, but it's really well thought through and important. Yeah, you can leave that too. Have it peer verified. Just think hard about it before you submit a mean review. Sure. We think hard about this stuff. It's the least you can do. Yeah. Before we submit mean reviews in podcast form, <laughs> we really think about it. Yeah. So we, we ask you to do the same. And yeah, we'll see you back here next time for. We'll see you back here next time. For for number one, make it so, number one. <laughs> wrong <laughs> wrong franchise, John. No, I'm pretty sure that's right. Is that, is that stupid enough to end on? It's pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs>